Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Anne Boleyn Biography. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook. Email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Another big name in English history because this week we are looking at Anne Boleyn, the second of Henry VIII's six wives. Yeah, I mean, I'm pumped. I'm ready. It is spot on 10 a.m. I've got. My, I've just realised it's not a radio show, <laughs> but uh, I've got. I had my first swig of tea. What? Tell me, Anna, what's going on? As with Catherine of Aragon, we're starting off with a one-off biography episode. Uh, next time, we will review her, score her, and decide whether or not she has the Rex Factor. We're also going to do a third episode, the Fall of Anne Boleyn. Mm. Spoilers. Looking <laughs> at the hows and whys of that. Mm. For today. We're going to do Anne's life and queenship in biography. Early years. So Anne Boleyn was the second daughter of Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth Howard, uh, probably born in 1501. Hang on. Howard? Howard, yes, indeed. So on her father's side, the Boleyn side, her great-grandfather Geoffrey had risen from mercantile stock to become Lord Mayor of London and purchased the Boleyn estates at Blickling in Norfolk, which is where Anne was born, and Hever in Kent. Mm. Uh, famous at Hever Castle, where she grew up. So, not the illustrious pedigree that we had for Catherine of Aragon, but, as you notice there, the Howard name uh, is quite a big one. So, on her mother's side, she could trace her descent from Edward I. Oh, good. Her mother was a sister to the Duke of Norfolk, thus, obviously, that is Anne's uncle, and he is one of the premier nobles uh, in the Tudor court. And that's why she's hanging around the court, because of him. Well, I mean, the Boleyn family are also, by this point, a, a notable family in the Tudor nobility. So her mother was lady-in-waiting to both Elizabeth of York and Catherine of Aragon, while her father, Thomas Boleyn, is a very cultured and intelligent man and had a gift for languages, so he becomes a prominent courtier and also a diplomat, both for Henry VII and then later for Henry VIII. All right. Cool. Now, in 1513, after serving as ambassador to the Low Countries, Thomas Boleyn uh, manages to secure a place for Anne at the court of Margaret of Austria, uh, who is acting as regent for her nephew, the future Charles V of Spain. Right. Uh, Margaret is renowned as both politician and a patron of the arts, and her court is something of a prestigious finishing school for the elite of Europe's nobility, so it's quite a prestigious spot for Anne to get. And Anne seems to flourish. It's one of Europe's most sophisticated courts. She'd be exposed to art by the likes of Hieronymus Bosch and uh, Jan van Eyck, perfects her French uh, and receives an education in dancing, music and deportment, as well as the noble pastimes of card games, falconry, horse riding and hunting, that sort of stuff. I'm not going to lie, it sounds like an awesome holiday camp. Today, what is it? Horse riding or uh, learning to sing a song? What you know? And even at this early age, Anne stands out. So uh, Margaret affectionately dubbed her La Petite Boulain, because she was a little younger than most of the other girls. And she reports to Thomas Boleyn, I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for having sent her to me than you to me. Oh, that's nice. Uh, unfortunately for Margaret, though, in 1514, the following year, Anne is on the move once again. She joins her older sister, Mary Boleyn, as a lady-in-waiting to Henry VIII's younger sister, 
confusingly also called Mary, Mary oh. Tudor. Right. Yeah. So the one who goes ja- off to Scotland? No. Uh, that's Margaret. But that sort of thing. <laughs> but that sort of thing, yes. <laughs> But instead of Scotland, it's France, because uh, Henry VIII's younger sister Mary Tudor marries King Louis Twelfth of France, only the second English woman to be... Uh, Queen of France. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, Rex Fact. What was the first? That was another Rex uh, Fact. What was that? Oh, was it was a name it gave. It was a sister of Athelstan. Oh, a Saxon person. Oh, yes. It's a long, long time. Yeah. We really were second fiddle for <laughs> yeah. Europe, weren't we? So, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's younger sister, marries the uh, King of France. He's a lot older than her, and indeed he dies just a few months later. Mary Tudor then rather scandalously marries Henry's best mate, the Duke of Suffolk, and leaves France. Anne, however, and her sister Mary Boleyn both stay in France and they become maids of honour to the new Queen Consort, Queen Claude, wife to Francis I. Once again, far more cultured and stylish than uh, England's court. Um, It's even possible she could have encountered Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, man. That's cool, isn't it? Anne fully absorbs uh, all the French fashions and culture, the flirtatious games uh, of courtly love, and she's exposed also significantly to humanists and religious reformers, most notably Francis's sister, Margaret d'Angoulême, and that very much lays the foundations for her own religious beliefs, as we'll see a little bit later. Ah, interesting. So, after nine years in Europe, Anne returns to England in 1522, and she makes an immediate impact at the English court. Uh, frustratingly, we don't have any contemporary portraits of her, most likely because Henry probably destroys them all. Oh, uh, yeah. But she's not considered a beauty by contemporary standards. So, sort of slim, mm. petite, uh, had a narrow oval face and a, a dark complexion when sort of fair was very much favoured. Most notably, she had sort of lustrous auburn hair and deep dark eyes, uh, which a French diplomat said she knew well how to use with effect, sometimes leaving them at rest and at others sending a message to carry the secret witness of the heart. And truth to tell, such was their power that many surrendered to their obedience. She sounds beautiful to me. Most significantly, though, she is also intelligent, witty and confident. She's dressed in the height uh, of fashion. She Basically, she embodies a certain sophisticated French chic. Mm. which the other English ladies at court can't really compete with. It's weird, isn't it? Because having done Catherine Aramican last time, it's sort of, you feel like, oh, well, we're now moving into very... Now, an English wife, completely different, but actually, in a funny way, Anne is very much a European product in terms of her culture and her personality. It's not Spanish, like Catherine, but it is French rather than English. That's her point of difference, I guess, to the rest of the court, and she'll play it up. Wolf Hall, she always says Crimwell from the TV adaptation, yeah. which is what I'm saying. French. French, I do love the way they think. Uh, Anne made her debut at court, participating in the Chateau Vert pageant, uh, which was an elaborate performance where she played one of the eight chivalric virtues, uh, Perseverance, uh, which proved quite apt for Anne. And they were all locked in the castle in a castle by uh, the vices until the virtuous men, led by certain Henry VIII, uh, storm in and rescue the virtues. It's actually, however, her sister Mary who seems to have caught Henry's eye at this point rather than Anne. So her sister becomes Henry's mistress for the next few years. Okay. However, there were many others at court that did notice Anne. Uh, she had actually returned to England to marry a chap called James Butler, who's the son of a man in dispute with her father over the earldom of Ormond. 
Uh, these negotiations quickly fizzle out, however. Instead, Anne becomes involved with Henry Percy, heir to the earldom of Northumberland. Uh. And uh, George Cavendish, a secretary to Cardinal Wolsey, observed that Percy would continually fall in dalliance among the Queen's maidens, being at the last more conversant with Mistress Anne Boleyn than any other, so that there grew such a secret love between them that at length they were insured together, intending to marry. Mm. Oh, I see. Boyfriend and girlfriend. Classic. Problem was, Percy was actually already betrothed to oh. the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury and had been so uh, since 1516, so for six years. Right. Okay. So when Cardinal Wolsey, Henry VIII's chief minister at this point, gets wind of uh, their affair, he sought to browbeat Percy into submission. I marvel not a little of thy peevish folly that thou wouldst tangle and ensure thyself with a foolish girl yonder in the court. I mean Anne Boleyn. <laughs> it's, it's when you don't have a delete button. And you, <laughs> yeah. You've done it all by hand. <laughs> Bracket asterisk. <laughs> yeah. uh, he goes on to contrast Percy's status. Uh, you know, one of the premier earldoms of England in Northumberland, with Anne's rather more lowly station. Because as I said, although she's related to Norfolk and the Boleyn's quite prominent, Anne isn't, you know, she's not titled or anything like that. Uh, but Percy says he wouldn't deny or forsake Anne, and that he had gone so far before so many worthy witnesses that I know not how to avoid myself nor to discharge my conscience, which is strongly implying that there was actually some kind of secret betrothal in place. Anyway, so a, a betrothal is almost effectively like a marriage for in, in this period. If you're betrothed, then that's it. You can't really do anything about it. But uh, Wolsey decides it's not really public or official, so he calls in the parents and they break the relationship up. And Anne is sent back to the family home at Hever. Misses her chance to marry the man that she may well have loved, chance to become uh, a lady, and uh, allegedly uh, nurses a long-standing grudge against Cardinal Wolsey as a result. Oh! Mm. Oh, but I tell you what, I mean, Wolsey, that was his opportunity. Imagine if he hadn't been bothered. Yeah, married her off to Percy. That was him avoiding death, and he had no idea. Mm. And her. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, perhaps the most famous of Anne's early romances was uh, her neighbour in Kent, a poet, diplomat, and spy. Oh, here we go. Thomas Wyatt. Poet. <laughs> you've, got, you've always got half a finger pointed at you. <laughs> <laughs> Wyatt, again, is uh, already married, albeit uh, unhappily and separated. Um, many people believe that Wyatt was in love with her, but Anne's feelings were perhaps a little more ambivalent, so it seems she might have been uh. indulging uh, in the flirtatious games of courtly love, but knowing that there wasn't really anything to gain by being the mistress to a married and non-titled man, other mm. than how his attentions might the rather occasion others to turn their looks to that which a man of his worth was brought to gaze at in her. Gosh, like a cryptic crossword existing in those days. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> I, if he thinks she's fit, there must be something. Let's have a look. Got you. God, scheming. Mm. Uh, one of Wyatt's poems seems to depict his uh, unrequited pursuit of Anne, so I know you'd be looking forward to a little bit of poetry. But it's, it's going to be filthy, isn't it? Who list to hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. And graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. Do not touch me, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. 
Now, those final lines may hint at why uh, Wyatt ultimately abandons his courtship of Anne and indeed suddenly decides to go on a diplomatic mission overseas in January 1527 because Anne has acquired a rather more senior admirer for Caesar's, I am, Uh, Caesar being Henry VIII. The Great Matter. Henry VIII is not yet the monstrous tyrant uh, of his later years. Uh, 36 to Anne's 26, uh, in 1527, that is. Um, he's, still, right. he's still jousting, he's still of a very athletic physique, an attractive man, near, if not at, uh, the peak of his powers. Uh, we don't know exactly when Anne caught Henry's eye. She probably first saw him in the Netherlands when she was with Margaret of Austria in 1513, after his victory uh, in the Battle of the Spurs, and he was around for some uh, diplomacy. She was definitely present uh, in 1520 when uh, we have the Field of Cloth of Gold in France, that great Anglo-French summit. She was there? <clears throat> she was there because she's in France. She's the, that was when she was the oh. uh, uh, serving uh, Queen Claude. Her father was the, also the ambassador to France at that point, so very much a family affair. Mm. Uh, we don't know whether or not she meets or encounters Henry, though, other than the fact that they are definitely there. Um, we know that she was in that pageant in 1522, but obviously Henry then goes on to have the affair with her sister, so it probably didn't make a huge impression. But it seems to be after his affair with Mary Boleyn ends in about 1525 that Henry joins in uh, the sport, the hunt, as uh, Wyatt called it, of seeking Anne's attention. But Anne seems to have played fairly coy with Henry, as, as well as Wyatt and all the others. And it's when she returns to Hever, leaves court in 1526, that his pursuit steps up a notch. Because despite finding the activity tedious and painful, Henry starts to write letters to Anne. Oh, brilliant. And they exist? They definitely exist. Uh, we have 17 letters from Henry to Anne that survive. Wow. Ironically, of all places, they survive in the Vatican archives. Really? Presumably someone snuck them out. I'm amazed they exist. We don't have Anne's replies, so Henry destroys Anne's letters, we assume. Yeah. But Henry's yeah. letters to Anne survive, so you sort of get a sense of the conversation. We don't know exactly what Anne says, but initially Henry's letters are very much following the conventional patterns uh, of courtly love. So it's all a bit of a game, a bit of a flirtatious sort of thing, maybe have a little bit of fun with her. His first letter is accompanied by a buck that he'd killed the previous day. Oh, I mean, what a romantic. The amount of times that has actually worked for me. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but by the third letter, Anne's elusive replies had begun to discombobulate Henry. <laughs> and she was clearly the one actually dictating the terms of the relationship. So Henry writes to her, Debating with myself the contents of your letter, I've put myself in great distress, not knowing how to interpret them. For of necessity I must ensure me of this answer, having been now above one whole year struck with the dart of love, not being assured either of failure or of finding place in your heart and grounded affection. So he's, yeah, okay, he's smitten. He's He's smitten, and he doesn't know where Anne stands. He's like, I can't tell if you do love me or if you don't like me at all, and I'm not sure what... You know, you're not responding yeah. in the normal way, which is, <laughs> oh, Henry, you're so wonderful. Yeah. You do know, I, and I'm I'm only three letters away from saying you do know who I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Henry is sufficiently smitten that in his fourth letter, he made uh, what he thought was a great show of commitment, uh, the equivalent of uh, the maitres en titre 
in France, he says to her, I will take you for my only mistress, rejecting from thought and affection all others save yourself to serve you only. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's romantic. Yeah, I mean, obviously for us to say, you know, you will be the only woman I'm committing adultery with. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound that <laughs> profound. <laughs> But actually, you know, he's the king, he takes mistresses, he is married, of course, still to Catherine of Aragon. So for him to be saying, look, you're going to be, we're going to be official, you're going to be the only one, you are my proper relationship, my mistress, the official mistress, you'll have a role at court. And There's a role? Like, well, in that. France, it is. It's not really ever had that in England, but that's what Henry's offering to her. He's saying, you will be my official mistress and I will be faithful to okay. you as my mistress. So he's introducing that custom. I've been trying to introduce her for years. <laughs> yeah. So this is a pretty big deal. But Anne has witnessed what happened with her sister and her reputation being sullied after she was mistress, actually not just to Henry VIII, but actually she was also mistress to the King of France before him. Mm. Yeah. The, the, The usual pattern. Indeed, and Anne isn't going to subject herself to that. So she declares great offence uh, at Henry's offer. And essentially, she tells him she will not be his mistress, nor indeed anybody's mistress. She will only be a wife. Now, Henry, as you can imagine, is not used to uh, rejection. Mm. Um, And he is increasingly captivated by Anne. Um, Because, you know, if you think about it, although it was initially very happy, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon had kind of been arranged for him. They drifted apart after years of marriage with only a daughter, Mary, instead of the son that Henry craved. Mistresses, like her sister, had come and gone. But this is perhaps the first time that Henry actually properly, genuinely falls in love. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. So, in love, Anne will accept nothing other than marriage. So, incredibly, that is what Henry offers her. Goodness me. In return for this offer, um, Anne sends him a gift of uh, a model ship. (sighs) Okay, I take it all back. I understand (laughs) where where he's coming from. Worth it. (laughs) Whatever else happens, it was worth it. Um, brilliant. Which uh, one? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't specify a name, as far as I'm aware, but it's a model ship which carries a woman and a pendant diamond. Now, as as is always the case with the Tudors, everything is symbolic. So the ship symbolises protection. The diamond symbolises a steadfast heart, and the woman, of course, is Anne. So, uh, in other words, the cryptic crossword answer is yes. I will marry you. Really? I mean. I would not have got that. <laughs> do they all know these rules? Or yes. do they just say off? Yeah, it's all, it's all part of the game. A part, of, part of their schooling is cryptic crosswords. Okay, fine. Henry does understand, so he is delighted when she sends it to him. Mm. I mean, we fine. assume that's what she meant. Maybe it was just a nice gift, and then he goes off, and she's like, oh, that was not... Well, that's what I mean. ...quite what I meant. Actually, it was, I just thought you'd like boats. Oh, just yeah, yeah. I'm sure it worked. I mean, it is an interesting point that we don't fully know what Anne's feelings about Henry are. We don't have her replies or indeed her inner thoughts on all of this. So, no, you know, she's got a blooming boat. It's just she just made him a nice boat. Um, but that is the plan. They become engaged. Henry now, when he signs off his letters, does little hearts around the age. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, isn't being in love so embarrassing? <laughs> 
all very easily said, and Henry and Anne seem to have assumed that it would be easily achieved. Uh, so in May of 1527, they appear uh, in public together for the first time at a dance, ostensibly organised to show off Henry's daughter, Princess Mary. Just 12 days later, Cardinal Wolsey convenes a secret court to determine the validity of Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, whilst Henry also applies for oh, dispensation yeah. to marry someone to whom he was already related in the first degree, having slept with Anne's sister. Uh, can you do that last bit again? What happened? He... So Henry, by consanguinity, because Henry slept with Anne's sister, he's technically, that counts as being related in the first degree. Does it? So he has to get dispensation to marry Anne. Mm. Which, ignoring the irony, of course, that he wants to annul his marriage with Catherine because she had slept with his brother. <laughs> oh, Henry, that's too embarrassing. How does he, glo- how does he sell that? Completely different. Henry's argument was also that the dispensation was a bit too vague before. Whereas nice. this dispensation will be absolutely... This is a real quiz. Perhaps for this reason, or indeed just general uh, problems not anticipated, the greater matter, as it became known, uh, proved rather more complicated to achieve. So they reckoned without Catherine of Aragon's spirited resistance, the political complication of Catherine's nephew, the King of Spain, taking the Pope virtual prisoner, and also Anne faces significant public hostility and the wrath of some of the most notable figures at court, such as the Duke of Suffolk, one of Henry's closest friends, Bishop Fisher, who is primary in Catherine's defence, and Thomas More. The man charged with securing the annulment against these obstacles was Cardinal Wolsey, of course, the man who had blocked her marriage to Henry Percy. Uh, five years earlier. Now, at first, probably for Henry's sake, uh, and perhaps political reality, Anne puts her distrust uh, of him to one side. But as things drag on and Wolsey's tactics prove unsuccessful, she decided that he was being actively obstructive uh, in almost preventing the success of their marriage. So she works with her family, most notably Uncle Norfolk, um, and turns Henry against Wolsey. So in 1529, he is dismissed as Chancellor, and he dies a few months later um, after being arrested for plotting a return to power by allying with Catherine and Spain against Anne. But doesn't get his head snicked off? No, he basically dies before he gets to the block. <laughs> oh, right, but that was the... That, that may well have been. I mean, it was kind of yeah. treasonous, so yeah. probably yes. Now, despite the delays and challenges, the effect... Uh, of all of this only seems to have brought Anne and Henry closer together. Uh, They were forced to physically separate in 1528 due to an outbreak of the sweating sickness, uh, which actually nearly claimed Anne's life. But thankfully she recovers. Henry sent uh, one of his best doctors and absence does seem to have made the heart grow fonder. So on their return to court, a French diplomat noted that greater court is paid to her every day than has been to the Queen for a long time. Well, Cardinal Campeggio, who was sent to rule on the divorce by the Pope, declared that he sees nothing, he thinks nothing, but Anne. Mm. Oh, he's building himself up for a real... Well, I mean... <laughs> he's in over his head. Yeah, it's gonna, it's, it can't live up to expectations, can it? He's, it? You're right, this is a first love thing. This should have been when he was a teenager. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> think practically henry well in some senses there are practical benefits because it is from anne that henry is able to find the solution to the problem and it's one which will transform his reign and indeed transform english history 
Anne's interest in religious reform had continued since her time in France, and she owned many texts that were considered heretical. Uh, but now she risks showing one of them to Henry, and she marks out key passages in William Tyndale's Obedience of a Christian Man, which claims that the Bible could prove that kings had rights as spiritual leaders, which over time had been usurped by bishops and the papacy. Oh. To this, Henry was receptive, saying, mm. this is the book for me and all kings to read. Yeah, okay. So with Henry proving receptive, uh, the Boleyns uh, as a family offer patronage to reformist academics such as uh, Thomas Cranmer uh, and Edward Fox, who furthered the argument, saying that English kings had always had divine authority in their kingdom, and all Henry has to do is reassert his ancient rights. So in other words, you don't actually need to put in any new laws or do anything new or different. You've already got the power. You just need to say say that you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's easy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Start right now. So finally, progress is being made. In 1531, Henry finally banishes Catherine from court uh, and gives her room uh, to Anne. So technically, Catherine is still sort of living with Henry for all this period. Mm-hmm. Um, And a political ally uh, is found in the form of Thomas Cromwell, uh, who's very much the rising star in Henry's government. In 1532, Cromwell secures the submission of the clergy, which lays the foundation for the act of supremacy uh, and the break from Rome. So Henry becoming the supreme governor of the Church of England. Now... Cromwell, he's been reading the same uh, from the same library as Anne, right? Indeed, he is another uh, reformer. So that's why he is also keen in pushing all of this forward. Uh, Thomas More had replaced Wolsey as Chancellor, but he now resigns. What's more, the aged Archbishop of Canterbury quite conveniently dies, and Thomas Cramer is quickly selected as his replacement. So we see in 1532, suddenly all all the pieces are starting to fall into place. People are being put into positions of power. Henry's moved forward with a new ideological and legal, thus, argument. We're getting close. Wow, all the architecture's in place. It would be amazing at the time to think that in 1532, it'd be one of those years where you go, even a year ago, you couldn't have imagined this happening. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the pieces are in place, but Henry still fears the threat of war with Spain, particularly if he's excommunicated. So he needs an ally, and the only country powerful enough to support him uh, is France. Mm. Thus, a political charm offensive is launched with Francophile Anne very much at the centre. Oh, yeah. Of course. French ambassador comes over and lays on the charm. Uh, A summit in France is arranged. King Francis even issues a personal invitation to Anne to attend. Nice. That's a framer, isn't it? Which is important, because I say, because she isn't queen. So, yeah. Just a person. However, as a woman, without titles, because as I said, she is not actually queen, and is not technically of suitable status to be in Francis's company, or at least not as Henry's companion, to officially meet in that uh, context. So in September 1532, Anne becomes the first woman ever to be created as a peer in her own right, uh, and Henry invests her as the Marquess of Pembroke. Rex. Fact. Hmm. She's the first... Does she ever appear in the Lords, then? Uh, no. Okay. But, but st- nevertheless... Hmm. He's done it on a technicality. Yeah. It's a significant title because um, Pembroke, of course, the birthplace of Henry VII, it had been the earldom of Jasper Tudor, Henry VII's uncle, so it's quite, you know, means a lot, Pembroke. It's like if 
Uh, Kate and William had met in Cambridge and they were the, made the Dukes of Cambridge or something like that. Yes. <laughs> so the visit goes ahead. Henry and the Marquess of Pembroke go to France. Mm-hmm. Um, the visit's a beast of pageantry. There's an English entourage of about 2,000. Days of banquets and jousting. Anne is already wearing the Queen's jewels, which have been extracted nice. from a rather reluctant Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. And she is publicly honoured by Francis. Um, Francis dance and dances with her, converses with her at length, and presents her with a very expensive diamond. Oh, what does that mean? Doesn't diamond mean something? It means- oh, it's steadfast, doesn't it? I think in, it can also mean, this is big and pretty. <laughs> well, that's how I understand it. But I might have taken Francis by the hand and led him away for a tender kiss. If that's what it also meant, just you put that poetry away, whatever you do. Yeah. Uh, however, the most momentous part of the trip was the journey home, because after a five-year engagement, Anne and Henry finally sleep together. Oh, God, how do we know that? Well, the timing's interesting. Were they now so certain of success they felt they could do it? Are they just overcome by the moment? Um, or perhaps Anne feels that Henry needs a final push uh, to actually press the marriage switch. Because by mm. Christmas 1532, how do we know that they slept together? Anne is pregnant. Right. Now, Henry cannot risk finally getting a son for it to be born out of wedlock. Mm. So he now needs to make sure marriage happens, and it happens quickly. Hence the push. Mm. Oh, yeah. They may actually have had a secret service in November, but officially they get married on the 25th of January in 1533, still only with a very few witnesses present and still all very hush hush and secret because he is of course technically still married to Catherine of Aragon and thus committing bigamy but he doesn't mind because he's head of his own church who makes the rules well yes he does need to do something about that technicality so once it finally comes out and it's into the open um, he gets Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury to sort it all out for him so on the 23rd of May Cranmer holds court looks into the matter and comes to the conclusion that Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was null and void Oh, you should have done that ages ago. Would have been easier, wouldn't it? Well, but that's the effect of the uh, supremacy, is that it means mm. that Henry can just get the archbishop to it. do that sort of stuff for him, as before the Pope yeah. was the person that would have to do that, and famously did not. Mm-hmm. So now the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer, has done it, and then five days later, on the 28th of May, he had a look at Henry's marriage to Anne and decided that that one was valid. So consequently, on the 28th of May, Anne Boleyn officially becomes... Queen of England. Does she have a coronation? Oh, yes. So while the wedding was very small and uh, secret, uh, her coronation on the 1st of June is as magnificent a ceremony as can possibly be arranged. Cromwell is in charge of it all, so it all runs very, very smoothly. He adds to the traditional fare by adding a procession by boat uh, from Greenwich. Uh, Anne is escorted by 50 decorated barges, including ones carrying a dragon spouting flames, cannons firing and virgins singing. Wow, imagine that. That'd be so cool. Met by Henry at the Tower of London, where she stays uh, the night before the traditional procession on foot through the city, where she is magnificently dressed in uh, the French fashion. She's actually the last of Henry's wives to be given a coronation and the last Queen Consort of England to be crowned separately from her husband. And the only one ever to be crowned with St. Edward's crown. Which is a signature honour, because this is the crown which is usually reserved for the monarch. But Henry crowns Anne with St. Edward's crown to give her full legitimate status. But but it's a 
bloke's crown. It is a bloke's crown. I mean, she's not going to wear it all the time. But the point is, you might be saying that she's not legit queen, but how much more legit can you get than that? St. Edward's yeah. crown. <laughs> yeah. Henry, Henry's sort of chatting to you about this. And going, I mean, I'll be honest. I thought I'd get a bit more of a reaction. <laughs> I mean, St. Edward's crown, mate. Yeah, I know. And it's a very good Rex fact, Henry. <laughs> I do, I do appreciate that. But I just can't get that. Tell me more about the fire dragon than that. (laughs) (laughs) Crowned with St. Edward's crown, but is it a great honour or will it turn out to be more of a poison chalice? We'll find out after the break. Scandalous Queen. So now officially queen, Anne holds great influence. She appoints allies to key positions of government, while her father and brother become Earl of Wiltshire and Viscount Rochford, respectively. Nice. She presides over her own court, larger than Catherine's, with more than 250 servants, uh, and spends lavishly on clothes, jewels, and renovating palaces. Mm. Yeah. And her influence is chiefly seen as a figurehead for the Reformation. Uh, Not only does she intercede to protect uh, preachers and translators from charges of heresy, uh, but she also ensures that when bishoprics and other senior clerical positions fall vacant, they are filled by fellow reformers. Oh, right. So she's... Like head of a movement, or of ju- as a figurehead, you said. Yeah, figurehead, and she's one of the ones who is certainly spearheading it. It's not just her, of course, you've got Cranmer, you've got Cromwell and other people, mm. but she's absolutely one of the key players in this. And, you know, in the Reformation uh, is an epoch-shifting moment in English history, and Anne's very much at the heart of the change. Now, to some extent, Anne had to be a figurehead for reform, because while Catherine Aragon still lived, she will embody Catholic mm. orthodoxy and, you know, the old ways as it were. And what's more, unless Anne can provide Henry with a son, many will continue to regard Catherine as the true queen. Mm. Unfortunately for Anne, when she gave birth in September 1533, she and Henry were to be disappointed because it was a boy without a winkle, Elizabeth. Oh, no. <laughs> Imagine being such a disappointment. Awful. Yeah, and this is, you know, we sort of talked about it a bit with Catherine last time, but it's, it's, yeah. it's potentially dangerous for the country. You don't want to go back to the Walls of the Roses. Oh, yes. Or you're looking at a boy as protection from chaos. Yeah. So it being a girl, uh, the jousts that were planned were cancelled. Pre- oh, no. The pre-written <laughs> letters announcing the birth of the prince had to have an extra S written onto them. Oh, dear. Still, Anne, uh, very much a doting mother to Elizabeth. And Henry is uh, not only fond of Elizabeth, but also um, we have the act of succession, which asserts that Elizabeth is the rightful heir and Princess Mary is illegitimate. However, many continue to view Catherine's daughter Mary as the true heir. Uh, Mary, 17 when Anne first becomes queen, of the true religion, as many will see, and has the backing of Spain, indeed the Holy Roman Empire. So increasingly, Anne sees that Mary is arguably her greatest threat, even more than Catherine. Yeah, definitely. And what's more, despite all the terrible treatment that he exerts on her, Henry does still love Mary, and he's prone to sentimentalism and also to acting impulsively. Yeah. <laughs> Which can go one of two ways, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <but. laughs> he very much is that, isn't he? Anne works hard to keep Henry and Mary apart as much as possible. She places Mary in Elizabeth's household, essentially to wait on her so that she knows her place oh, I see. very directly in the succession, insists on Mary being treated very strictly um, unless she will acknowledge Anne as queen. Uh, but Mary proves as stubborn as Catherine, stating that she knew of no other queen but her mother, though she'd be grateful if the king's mistress would speak on her behalf. 
So Mary is not going to budge. She will remain a threat. Uh, and after a miscarriage, uh, sadly, in 1534, Anne grows increasingly paranoid um, and more than once makes clear that she would eliminate Mary given half the chance. Part of the reason for Anne's sort of tension and paranoia is that all is not entirely well in the paradise. Uh-oh. Uh, during her pregnancy with uh, Elizabeth in 1533, uh, Shapwe, the Spanish ambassador, described Henry undertaking an affair with an unnamed but very beautiful woman. Mm. Uh, Anne furiously berated Henry, um, who was furious in response, <laughs> t- yeah. telling her that she should turn a blind eye, as Catherine had always done. <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> don't bring her up. <laughs> what are you doing? The thing is, though, it's a greater threat for Anne because Catherine's power is built on her birth and her status, whereas Anne's power is based yeah. on her ability to control Henry's affection. So an affair, from Anne's perspective, is much more threatening than it was for Catherine, albeit perhaps Catherine maybe should have taken the threat a bit more seriously by the end. And there's also an irony that Anne's wit and her assertiveness and her confidence had all been the qualities perfect to entice Henry uh, and for her to become queen, but she's now struggling to adjust the fact that to remain queen, Henry expects her to become more subservient and conventional. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's um, he's just he's such a stereotype, isn't he? Uh, there are frequent reports of arguments between uh, Henry and Anne, and even uh, a suggestion that Anne, uh, Henry was starting to make inquiries about whether he could divorce Anne without having to go back to Catherine. <laughs> Uh, however, this is, these reports are probably more wishful thinking uh, from her enemies than anything else. Uh, Shapwe rightly dismissed uh, these uh, fights as lovers' quarrels uh, and what the historian G.W. Bernard described as a tumultuous relationship of sunshine and storms. I, can Im- I, mean, I don't imagine anything different from them. Of course. Hmm. In 1535, following some of these reports, following the executions of uh, Bishop Fisher and Thomas More for refusing to uh, acknowledge the act of supremacy in succession, Anne and Henry go on a summer progress together. Shapri reported that the king loves his mistress now more than ever he did, uh, and somebody else observed that they were seen to be very merry in each other's company. Okay. All is well. It comes and goes. They still have a lot of affection for each other. And indeed, in the new year, 1536, Anne's position will markedly improve. Not only is she pregnant once again, but Catherine of Aragon dies on Ah. the 7th of January, 1536. Uh, Now, Anne was reportedly delighted uh, at the news, ostentatiously wearing bright yellow uh, in court in response. Um, Callous, one might say, but it was significant for Anne, because now there can be no question that Anne was the legitimate Queen of England. Even if you didn't accept the annulment, Catherine is now dead. Henry's mad to Anne. She is the Queen. Anne even makes uh, further overtures to Mary, offering to be a second mother to her, and only requesting minimal courtesies uh, in return. Uh, But Mary still refuses to have anything to do with her. This is Mary's darkest times, I guess. However, on the very day of Catherine's funeral, the 29th of January, Anne suffers another miscarriage, and this time it was of a son. Oh, imagine. They would put so much on that date. Indeed, there's a lot of symbolism going on there. That's the trouble. When you speak in cryptic crosswords, (laughs) you see them everywhere. Yeah. Henry is despondent, enters her chamber, saying, I see that God will not give me male children. Well, it certainly looks that way, but I mean... (laughs) <laughs> you know, do something about it. Well, um, that 
is obviously what Henry will do. He will do something about it. Ironically, Catherine's death had actually left Anne more vulnerable because while Catherine lived, as we were saying, Henry oh. can't really leave her. Yeah. Partly for pride, he can't have gone through all of that mm. and then leave Anne and Catherine looks like she was right. Mm. Uh, but also there would just be more issues with legitimacy. If he divorces Anne and marries somebody else, you know, have three people alive who could all claim to be his wife. <laughs> oh... But now Catherine's gone, Henry now starts talking openly about the possibility of a third marriage. So all their relationship is... When he starts talking about that in public, their relationship is, is over, right? <laughs> yeah. Surely. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been thinking about marrying again. Henry! <laughs> Still here. <laughs> oh, yes, that's next week, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> Got my speeches muddled up. My loving <laughs> wife... <laughs> Well, the problem is that there was a lady in waiting, as it were, one of Anne's ladies in waiting, Jane Seymour. Jane seed far too much, I think. Well, maybe not, because she is very much playing Anne at her own game. She returns expensive gifts from Henry unopened, and she refuses to be his mistress. Mm-hmm. And Henry just, he just loves this game. He falls for it all over again. Oh, yeah, and of course. This is that surefire Henry fodder. Yeah, just say no. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that is the way to get someone who has everything. Say no. Yeah. Make yourself the thing they got. Oh, it's, ooh, I'm going to use that. And it really is sort of following the miscarriage that Jane becomes much more prominent. And people who are enemies of Anne see Jane as a means of getting rid of Anne. Mm. Um, Ominously, Henry chooses to fill a vacancy in the Order of the Garter, not with Anne's brother George, but with Jane's chief mentor and uh, an enemy of Anne, a chap called Nicholas Carew. Oh. So Anne is operating in an increasingly hostile climate. Uh, The French alliance is disintegrating, and indeed the French reject a betrothal between Elizabeth and the Dauphin, suggesting instead uh, that the Dauphin could be betrothed to Mary. Which, oh, given wow. everything Anne's done for France and pushing them yeah. as the country to go to, bit of a bet bit of a she, snub. Yeah, bet she drops the Cromwell nonsense. Cromwell. And also that you think, if um, from Henry's perspective, what's what benefit am I getting from this? I still don't have a son. France won't ally with me. Spain still hates me. Everything would be a lot easier if one person wasn't part of the equation. Yeah, and he's got previous. So what happens? Hmm. Well, Anne obviously is also aware of all this stuff going on, so she's more tense and a bit more stressed, and as a result, her acerbic wit and self-assertiveness, heightened by all of this, sees her losing rather than gaining Mm. uh, allies at court. Norfolk, on one occasion, storms out of her chambers, complaining he'd been treated worse than a dog, and calling her every name under the sun. Mm. But the most serious breach is with Thomas Cromwell. Now, they'd never really been the close allies that many assume, because Cromwell, after all, had been a loyal servant of Cardinal Wolsey, whom Anne mm. destroys. Yeah. But they had had the religious connection, of course, that meant that it made sense to work together in that sense. But in April of 1536, they clash over the dissolution of the monasteries and how to uh, operate that policy. And Anne goes as far as directing her chaplain to preach a thinly veiled attack on Cromwell in front of Henry and the whole court. Oh, she's a bit of an idiot. They also clash over foreign policy, with Cromwell working with uh, Chapuy, Spanish ambassador, to establish a rapprochement with Spain. But on Easter Monday, the 18th of April, Anne very much seems to get the upper hand, so Chapuy is outmanoeuvred into having to publicly acknowledge Anne as Queen for the first time. Oh, Basically, yes, he... I remember that. 
from the Tudors. He's tricked into, yeah, he's tricked into being in the same place as her. She bows to him and etiquette demands he bows back, which is thus public recognition of her. That very day, so after this, um, Henry then berates both Shapwee and Cromwell for their meddling in terms of pushing an alliance, pushing Mary's legitimacy. So this seems like a very public support of Anne's position here against Cromwell and against Spain. Yeah. Certainly, at least from Cromwell's perspective, and maybe from Anne's as well, there's a sense that they can't both prosper at court for long. Mm. Yeah. Oh, dear. And when your enemy is Cromwell, you're in trouble. Mm. And even if Henry is still sort of supporting Anne, he's also got Jane and other concerns in the background. So there's almost a sense that Henry's got two different scenarios that could play out, one which is going with Anne and one which is not going with Anne. Now, less than two weeks after this, uh, Anne provides the uh, ammunition that her enemies need to take action and uh, Henry to have his not Anne scenario. And it was one weekend with two unguarded conversations. Uh, One is with Henry Norris, who's one of Henry's oldest friends, um, but close now to Anne, in which she tells him, you look for dead men's shoes, for if aught should come to the king but good, you would look to have me. No. In other words... If the king died, you'd want to marry me. Right. The other is a musician in her chambers, Mark Smeaton, whom Anne upbraided when he would not deign to tell her why he was looking sad, to which he replied, No, no, madam, a look sufficed me, and thus fare you well. Well, I don't understand what's going on. Now, the conversation with Norris is ostensibly the more dangerous one in terms of what's said there, because although flirtation's very much part of courtly love... Anne's words encompass the king's death, which is treason. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you look for dead men's shoes, the dead man being Henry, if anything other than good, i.e. bad, were to happen to the king, you would seek to marry me. It is specifically in the treason act that to encompass the king's death is treason. And Anne says this in a, her chambers, but that's effectively a public forum. It's a very ill-advised thing to say, particularly if you're not particularly getting on well with the king mm. okay word quickly gets around court because as i say it's not a private uh, private conversation and she ends up having a furious row with henry uh, the scottish theologian alexandra uh, alexander alasius later told elizabeth that he witnessed anne entreating henry uh, holding the infant elizabeth in her arms in front of henry but henry is just sort of glaring implacably out of the window being cross right However, Henry postpones a scheduled visit to Dover, but he does decide to still go ahead with the May Day celebrations the next day uh, and even lending his horse to Henry Norris uh, at uh, the jousting. So it suggests that he's cross, he's suspicious, but he's not yet decided. It's Smeaton who's the one that ultimately causes the greater damage. Um, the issue with the conversation from him was really the familiar tone of saying a look sufficed me and all this sort of stuff. I don't understand um, what she was saying. What I don't understand what the combination of words means. No, no, madam. A look sufficed me. I Just getting to look at you makes me feel a bit better. That's nice. It's sort of nice, but it's also it's a little bit, again, a little bit flirtatious. It's one of those where in the, the problem with courtly love is that in the, this context where you've got lots of enemies looking to make some kind of case against you, the flirtatious chit-chat that they all do can be looked very suspicious if you write it down and read it out in a court. I, I tell, can't tell you how quickly I'd have my head taken from me. <laughs> I am such a flirt. <laughs> no. no, but I'd be commenting on something innocently and... I'd have my body thrust through with arrows before I knew it. Also, Smeaton is seen spending a very suspiciously large amount of money 
given the amount of money that he'd actually be earning. So the combo of those two is enough for Cromwell to ask him some questions. And when he is taken in for questioning, perhaps aided by a little bit of torture, Mark Smeaton confesses to adultery with Anne. Do it, is it true? The significant thing is that he has made this confession. Whether or not it's true, he's said it. Yeah. And it's on the 1st of May, May Day, that uh, Conrad gets him to confess. So word is immediately sent to Henry at the tournament at Greenwich. And as soon as he hears this, he abruptly gets up and leaves the jousts, accompanied by just six attendants, including Henry Norris, whom Henry then uh, confronts and interrogates uh, on the way home. What what news did he get? That made him leave? That Smeaton had confessed to adultery. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And he potentially names other people in Anne's household that Anne has close relations with, which probably includes Norris. Right. Um, we don't know that for sure. But certainly, whatever Henry asks Norris and whatever Norris says in response doesn't convince Henry, because the next day, on the 2nd of May, Henry Norris is arrested and sent to the Tower of London. Oh, God. So, too, is Anne Boleyn. Uh, she's arrested while presiding over a tennis match and uh, taken to the tower. Uh, on arrival, she fell down on her knees, beseeching God to help her, as she was not guilty of her accusement. Uh, she also demanded to know the location of her father and of her sweet brother, as well as the charges against her. Uh, unfortunately, her sweet brother had tried to intercede with Henry at Whitehall, but Cromwell had uh, made sure that he wouldn't be able to, and in fact, George Boleyn is also arrested on the charge of adultery with the Queen i.e. incest. Now, Cromwell doesn't make much headway uh, with them all arrested uh, until Anne, perhaps trying to make sense of her predicament, starts talking. And uh, she relates in full her conversation with Norris uh, and Smeaton, but also a conversation she thought more concerning that she'd had with Sir Francis Weston, where he had teasingly told her that Norris kept visiting her chambers, not uh, for Mary Shelton, Anne's cousin, to whom he was uh, suspected of being about to uh, propose, but he was there for Anne herself and this is all a bit more flirtatious it shows that weston has knowledge of this inappropriate uh, relationship between anne and norris so francis weston is arrested oh because she's saying he knew yeah oh does he die uh, so he's arrested. Um, William Brereton is also arrested. Uh, no one quite knows why, probably because he's an enemy of Cromwell's. Uh, and a few other figures who do actually have quite close ties to Cromwell, such as Thomas Wyatt, are arrested, which may have been Cromwell just trying to keep them quiet and out of trouble. So by the 8th of May, uh, all of the arrests are complete. Uh, Cromwell finds what evidence he can to build the charge that Anne has committed adultery with Norris, Weston and Brereton, uh, with the lovers plotting to kill Henry and for one of them then to marry Anne. Spicy cherry on top of the scandal cake, of course, is incest with her brother George and also uh, dalliance with the musician Mark Smeaton. On the 12th of May, Norris, Brereton, Weston and Smeaton are put on trial in front of a uh, notably hostile jury. Despite protestations of innocence from everybody other than Smeaton, uh, they are found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Oh, my Lord above. Anne is put on trial a few days later, which might be surprising given that she's the main person, but of course any defence that she might try to make will be undermined by the fact that the men have all been found guilty. (laughs) Yeah, that is... Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, she gives a good account of herself, however, demonstrates courage and intelligence in the way that she's able to deny and refute all of the charges that are put against her. But of course, by this point, it's all in vain. The jury of 27 peers, headed by Uncle Norfolk, unanimously declare her guilty and sentence her to death. Uncle Norfolk? God, he has to sentence his own daughter to death. His own niece. niece. Hmm. That's not at all niece. 
Uh, <laughs> that, knowing Norfolk, that's very much the kind of thing he could have said. <laughs> Among the 27 also is her former paramour, uh, Henry Percy, oh, yeah. uh, who collapses, apparently, on hearing the verdict and had to be carried out. Oh, because that was that was that was love, wasn't it? Uh, Anne, however, receives the verdict very calmly, uh, saying that she was prepared to die, but was sorry that others should have to die because of her. Quite, yeah, I mean, you should at least say sorry for killing someone, which effectively she <laughs> did by saying that he he said that. Now, the final trial later in the day was uh, her brother, George Boleyn. Um, and again, this is probably because the incest charge was always going to be the harder sell, frankly. And uh, indeed, George's vigorous defence meant Shapwee and other witnesses actually predicted he might be acquitted. Yeah. But again, coming after Anne, she's been found guilty of incest, so he has to as well, really. Also, he very deliberately read out a piece of evidence against the specific instructions of the court, saying that Anne had told his wife, that Henry was not skillful in copulating with a woman and he had neither virtue nor potency. Okay, so he's definitely dying, isn't he? Yes, if he wasn't already condemned, uh, then saying that the king was rubbish in bed and impotent was probably going to seal his fate. Yeah, he he knew it and took that opportunity to say it, didn't he? So on the 17th of May, uh, Norris, Smeaton, Weston Brereton and George Boleyn are all executed on Tower Hill. Anne was to suffer further indignity that same day as uh, Thomas Cranmer declared her marriage to Henry was invalid, meaning that she now ceased to be queen on the 17th of May and that her daughter Elizabeth was now illegitimate. After all that time when they'd spent finding that it was okay, it's now not okay. Yeah. It's tricky this, isn't it? Cramer had visited her the previous day, so there has been some speculation about whether could she have been deceived into agreeing to the annulment in return for her life being spared, because she speaks afterwards about hope of maybe being allowed to retire to a nunnery or to Antwerp. Yeah, I'd like to go to a nunnery as well. However, it seems doubtful that Cramer would have cruelly misled her on purpose. Indeed, he writes to Henry the day after her arrest, declaring himself in such a perplexity that my mind is clearly amazed at the thought that Anne could be culpable, though he is of course careful to accept that Henry wouldn't have arrested her if she wasn't guilty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, he's he's always right, yeah. So by no means the cavalry coming to the rescue, but this is the closest that anyone really comes to speaking up for Anne. So, you know, maybe Cranmer just said that he'd try to speak up for Anne he tried to persuade Henry and Anne thus thought oh I'm saved or just allowed herself to imagine that there was a glimmer of hope yeah well or or, I mean you it's so unprecedented isn't it you think Mm. that it would it'd be a big part of everyone thinking this won't actually happen you won't actually kill Mm. the queen because this is his first um, (laughs) this is the first time he kills a wife isn't it it is yeah First time any Queen of England's been killed. So in the early hours of the 18th of May, with her execution now scheduled, uh, Anne invites William Kingston, the constable of the Tower, to hear Mass with her, and she swears on peril of her soul's damnation, both before and after hearing the sacrament, uh, that she had never been unfaithful to Henry. I don't believe she was, but does she have to die? I mean, in Henry's eyes, is there, is there, I mean, why doesn't he show Henry mercy? does tend to go from one extreme to another. So he's he's not somebody who kind of becomes a bit indifferent. He will go from love to hate, basically. But but could she just nunnery it? I, I don't know. Does it set a precedent that... But it's, it's such a good argument against capital punishment because it happens again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they they and he didn't learn his lesson. If we've learnt one from thing from this. But then after that time it never happened again. 
Well, there we go. Um, Anne is disappointed, however, later in the uh, the morning when uh, she finds that her execution has been delayed and indeed ultimately delayed until the following day. She's disappointed. Oh, well, I had something planned for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, ba- I get basically, you know, she knows that she's going to die. She's you got herself yourself, yeah. mentally prepared and then she finds out it's going to be the next day. So mm-hmm. if you've given up on the hope of getting out of it, I guess she, she was ready. And, you know, she was saying basically she was so hoping awful. to be delivered from her pain. Um, Kingston, in response, tries to, contro- uh, tries to console her, telling her that it should be no pain. It was so little. Um, and this comment seems to have tickled Anne a little bit. So she replies, I heard say the executioner was very good and I have a little neck uh, before putting her hands around her neck and laughing heartily. She's in shock. Bit of gallows humour. Uh, Kingston wrote to Cromwell saying that I've seen many men and also women executed and that they have been in great sorrow. And to my knowledge, this lady has much joy in death. Ultimately, the execution, as say, was delayed until the following morning, the 19th of May. Uh, they, I think potentially because they had to await the arrival of the skilled swordsman oh, from yeah. France, who would be her executioner, which was, in fact, a merciful gesture on Henry's part, because uh, it would be a swift death. That's what I mean. Like There is a moment when Henry could just... Or does show that he's he's when the old romance comes out, he can't help himself. The old sentimental, <laughs> yeah. Tim. Oh, you know, like ah, oh, there was there was that time. Give her the sword. <laughs> Very odd. He's killing someone. Why would he show any mercy? Mm. I mean, that's not my official line. I'm just hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> Anne walks to the scaffold. A more private affair on Tower Green rather than Tower Hill. We've though it's still it, probably Greg. about. Indeed, we have. Probably still about a thousand or so people there. But it's not a huge public spectacle in the way that it would have been for the the previous ones. Uh, accompanied by her female attendant, she's wearing a red petticoat under a loose, dark grey gown of damask, trimmed in fur with a mantle of ermine. And she then addresses the crowd. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king, and send him long to reign over you, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never. And to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and a sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world, and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. What a brave woman. But she's lying. It's convention in this period that when you're being executed, you basically say that you deserve to die. You say that the king's great. All this sort of stuff. She's got, from her perspective, she's got Elizabeth to think about. So she doesn't want to rant and rave against Henry because that's not going to do Elizabeth any help. So as dignified a response as you can. Though it's notable, the if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best, has often been seen as a little nod, perhaps, to posterity. I, If anyone wants to have a look at this, I think you'd probably find not guilty. Mm. Well, that's nice. little Easter egg mm. for us. <laughs> a little Easter egg for us, yeah. Uh, her ermine mantle is then removed. She lifts off her headdress and tucks her hair under a uh, quaff. Uh, bids farewell to her weeping ladies, one of whom uh, ties a blindfold 
over her eyes. Uh, there's no executioner's block for Anne because it's the swordsman. So she instead kneels upright, <coughs> which is the French style of execution, to the end. Uh, appropriately. Um, but obviously with the executioner's block, normally with the axe, head there, keep it in the position down, whereas the sword is much more as a weapon of finesse, but also of accuracy. It's not a, less of a blunt instrument. You need to sort of squish the spine against the block to get through. Yeah. One snick. So Anne is kneeling upright, repeating continually, Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul. The executioner then takes out his sword and in one swift blow removes her head. According to some reports, her lips and eyes still moving when her head lands in the straw below. It's barbarism, isn't it? So at the age of 35, Anne Boleyn uh, is dead. The first ever Queen of England to be executed. She's buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula uh, at the Tower of London. Uh, Though during renovations in 1876, a skeleton was identified and she was then reburied in a marked grave. So if you go there now, you can see. Which we did. A mere 10 days after Anne's death, Henry married Jane Seymour. Correspondence Corner. So that was the life and consortship of Anne Boleyn. We will review her next time, but uh, obviously you can let us know what you've thought thus far. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook, email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. Also, we are launching a competition. We've been asking for you to send in your hashtag consort cards uh, in this series, so an episode image for each consort. And for the six wives of Henry VIII, we are offering the fantastic prize of a Henry VIII metal figurine which has a Rex Factor written out on its wooden base, kindly provided by Dr. Miles Kerr-Peterson. So send in your consult card for Anne or uh, any of the uh, other six wives, and uh, you could be in a chance of winning the prize. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from us, join the Privy Council and get access to over 150 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Esme H. Victoria Person. Yariba. Alana Wright. Chris Dausch. Emily Adu, Chad Mazarek, Anastasia Zhang, Melissa Gear, Melita Pendergast, Mine Goyen Fook, Caroline Mills, Angelica Burton, Jake Whiting, Michael Searle, Daniel Cash, Summer, Martin Duke, Stacey Hooker, Neve Josephine, Michael Kane, Mr. Dominic Conquest, Maria Cowell, Ethelfled of Gloucester, and Freddy. There's quite a few familiar names in there. Senor Duke. Indeed. Oh, cheers, man. Uh, So that is all from us and uh, for Anne's biography. Next time, we will review Anne Boleyn and decide whether or not she has the Rex Factor. But until then, it's goodbye. Cheerio. (laughs) 